As we read in our lesson, the main text that we're looking at where Jesus refers to or answers the question about the greatest commandment in Mark chapter 12 is in response to a question that he had been asked. Now, this takes place during the last day of Jesus or the last week of Jesus's life. Uh, Matthew records this event as well. And on that day, Jesus has been teaching and he's been peppered with questions from his adversaries. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were all trying to find ways to trip Jesus up, to turn the crowds against him, to get him in trouble in some way. And so they had been asking him several different questions. The Pharisees had tried tripping him up with a question about paying taxes to Caesar. And uh, that seemed to be an impossible question. If he said that they should pay taxes to Caesar, then the people might turn against Jesus. If he said they shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, they could turn him over to the Roman authorities. And yet Jesus answered the question perfectly when he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Well, they had been stumped. And so the Sadducees gave it a try. They asked a question about the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they had this foolproof question about a man or a woman rather who had been married and her husband died and so under the Old Testament law of leveret marriage uh, she had married his brother since they hadn't had any children and this happened six or seven times and none of them produced any offspring whose, whose wife would she be in the resurrection and again Jesus showed their foolishness their misunderstanding of scripture so he answered that question and they simply could not trip Jesus up but there appears to be a man who is actually a lawyer, he's a Pharisee, and asks another question of Jesus. But he doesn't appear, I don't think, to be trying to trip Jesus up. In fact, we're told that he had saw or he'd seen that Jesus answered these questions well. And as he listens to Jesus, even though he probably is with the rest of the Pharisees and against Jesus, he's at least open-minded enough to realize this man, Jesus, is answering these questions incredibly. He's doing a wonderful job. He's very knowledgeable. And so he asks him a question, not out of testing and trying to trip Jesus up, but a question that was an important question, a debated question among their day, and to see what Jesus would say and how he would answer. And so he asks him, he says, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answers the man. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, when he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Of course, Jesus went on. We're not going to focus on the second part today, but he went on to say the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, On these hang all the law and the prophets. Now we might ask the question, why is this commandment the greatest commandment of all? I forget the exact number, but there are somewhere over 600 law, uh, commandments that have been counted up in the Old Testament. Now, there's a lot more than just the Ten Commandments. Those are just kind of a, a review, if you will, of the law. But there were over 600 explicit commands of some form under the Mosaic Law. Now, of all of those, why is this command to love the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, why is this recognized even by Jesus as the greatest commandment? Is it that we can, is that that the Jews could have followed this commandment and shunned the rest of the others and have been okay? That's how we often look at the greatest. We think, what is the greatest thing that we can do? What's the most important thing that we can do? And what we're looking for is what's the one thing that I can do and really not worry about the rest. 
I think some people approach Christianity that way. I've heard people say, I've seen people write before uh, referring to maybe a Sunday morning worship. They'll say that this is the most important thing that we'll do this entire week. Maybe that's true. Worship is an important thing. But sometimes if we're not careful, we begin to look at Christianity as as long as we come together and we worship and we do so without instruments and we do so with one cup and one loaf, we've done the most important thing that we need to do. And the rest of our week really is kind of up to us and it really doesn't matter. But don't get me wrong, worshiping is important. Assembling with the saints on the first day of the week is paramount. It is required of Christians Worshiping in accordance with God's pattern is important. It's required. But is it the greatest thing that we can do? I don't think so because of what Jesus says. Jesus didn't refer to any of the specific worship laws or even moral laws. But he said the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The reason that's the greatest commandment is because if someone truly loves God with all they are, with the entirety of their being. The other 600 and so commandments would fall into place for Jewish people. For you and I as Christians, if we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, I'm not saying it will be perfect or it will always be easy, but if we truly love God with all that we are and all that we have, the rest will fall in place. We will worship We will seek to worship appropriately. We will seek to live appropriately. All of those things will take care of themselves. But when we don't follow God, probably in almost every case, it's because we have failed to truly love Him with all of our being. So let's take a look at this uh, phrase of Jesus, these different ideas, because it's interesting that Jesus did not just say, love God, love God above all else, And it's interesting it didn't say that in the Old Testament, but it gives us different aspects with our heart and mind and soul and strength. What are those things? That's really going to be the the focus of the main focus of our sermon this morning. So let's consider those ideas. First of all, Jesus reminds us that we must love God with all of our heart. Now, what does that mean? What What is the heart? Well, speaking of the heart refers to our emotions, our desires, and our motivations. When it comes to religion, a lot of people are very emotional. But we have to realize, I think, that when Jesus talks about loving God with all of our heart, he's not talking just about emotionalism. But while it's not just emotionalism, emotions are certainly involved. Now, what I mean by emotionalism is some people get caught up and they basically try and find truth through their feelings. What feels good? What feels right? What is emotionally compelling and moving to me? And when people find something that is emotionally moving, they think that that is the truth. And so sitting through a boring church service, surely that can't be the truth. Surely something needs to change to um, increase my emotions. That is not the guide to truth. And we can't let just our feelings and our emotions be our guide. Obviously, I think we would all agree that emotions are a fickle thing. Emotions change. They go up and they go down, sometimes within the course of even a few hours. We do not want our emotions to be our guide. But that being said, while religion, while true faith and loving God is not just about mere uh, emotionalism, emotions are involved. 
In fact, if we have an emotionless faith, that's a frightening faith to possess. If we are never moved by emotions, and we are not really Christ-like, Jesus was moved by emotions, we see pity, we see sympathy, we see anger, we see sadness, we see joy, we see all sorts of emotions in the Lord's life. Now, He controlled His emotions, but He had emotions as He dealt with people, as He served people, as He sought to glorify the Father. But all of His desires, all of His motivations, all of His emotions were given to serving and honoring the Father. And that's what we must seek in our own lives. Our desires and our motivations, in fact, our greatest motivation must be shaped by a desire to serve and to honor our Heavenly Father. And when we think about motivation, it's, it's like the engine. It's like the thing that, that provides the force and the ability. Imagine a vehicle. Imagine you were given uh, a beautiful uh, vehicle. It, was, it looked good. It was the envy of the town. Uh, it could supposedly go very fast. It was luxurious. It was comfortable. The best car you can possibly imagine. And someone gave it to you, and you were very excited. But then when you went to turn the car on, it didn't turn on. And upon further inspection, you realize it's because there is no engine. Well, maybe a beautiful car to look at may have a lot of potential, may be comfortable to sit in, but it doesn't work, does it? Because there's not an engine, there's not a force that moves it, that drives it, that compels it. And so it is for people that don't have the right motivation. Now, some people may be busy, they may be going through the motions, they may be checking the box, so to say, but their motivations, their desires are not truly given over entirely to the Father. And so they don't have the movement. They don't have what is necessary to truly live a life that is honoring to the Father. But when we love God with all of our heart, not just some of it, but with all of our heart, there is nothing that we will not give up for God. That comes from desire. That comes from a motivation. There are a lot of things in life that are hard to give up. If we've been steeped in sin, if there is some vice or activity that we have held on to for a long time, that can be very difficult to give up, especially if it has formed an addiction in our life. One of the reasons that people don't give certain things up is just to be blunt about it, they don't love God <clears throat> with all their heart. Because we love some feeling, we love some pleasure, we love something more than we truly love God with our heart. Our motive is not there enough to truly work and struggle against the flesh or the pride of life or whatever it might be to give something up. But when we, love, when we give God all of our heart, there is nothing we will not give up. Not a vice, not a possession, not a relationship, not a job. There is nothing that will be too valuable in our lives to, to hold on to in place of serving God. There's nothing, when we love God with all of our heart, there's nothing that we will not do in service to God. Some people will go through their motions, they go through what they think is necessary, but they will not go beyond that. They won't put in the extra work, they won't put in extra effort. There's lows that they will not stoop to in service. What is that an indication of? It's an indication of someone who truly does not love God with all of their heart. Because when our motivation is truly and 100% to honor and serve God, then there is nothing that we won't do to serve 
and honor God. We won't put worldly things ahead of God. We won't put selfishness ahead of others. We will do all that we can in service to God. And when we love God with all of our heart, then simply there is nothing that we will love more than God. I doubt any of us would say, yes, I, I love money more than God. I love recreation more than God. I love my job more than God. None of us would actually come out and say any of those things. But what do our lives say? What do our actions tell others? Are there things that we love more than God? Well, are there things that we put before serving God, honoring God, worshiping God, obeying God? If we love God with all of our heart, then we will truly love Him more than anything else. But what about the soul? Jesus says that we will love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul. What is the soul? Well, the soul here refers to our existence, our being, our very life. We are physical beings, we have physical bodies. But we are clearly more than just physical bodies. We have personalities. We have feelings. We have a soul. And loving God goes deeper than motion. Loving God goes deeper than just going through certain activities. But loving God also goes deeper than emotions. Loving God should become and be our very existence. What is the purpose of your life? What is the purpose of my life? Where do we find fulfillment? I've noticed over the past several years that the idea of fulfillment, personal fulfillment, has become a very big talking point. People are always looking for that thing which fulfills them, that thing which brings them personal meaning. People are looking for, people are craving a cause, and they're craving a cause bigger than themselves. Just look at the news. It's what leads to a lot of the problems and the debates and the arguments in this world. People want to be a part of a cause bigger than themselves, whether it's saving the earth, whether it's a political movement, whether it's uh, stopping some type of crime. People want to be a part of a cause. They want purpose. They want meaning. Even though people often don't want to think about a judge a creator who will hold them accountable. And so they like the idea of evolution and coming from nothing and, and just being here by chance and accident. That leads down a dark road because if we are the result of chance and accident, then our life is meaningless. So we have to try and find some meaning, some purpose to trick ourselves for our few measly ears on earth before we fade off into oblivion. That's hard for people. And understandably so, because that's not who we really are. You see, we have been created by God in the image of God, and that gives us an incredible purpose. And that purpose is to serve and honor our Creator. Remember Paul's words in Galatians 2 verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God. Again, our culture, our education system, our workforce, very, they're all very big on motivating you down the path of your dreams and your aspirations. We've all done this. How often do we ask small children, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? 
What do you want to accomplish? What are your dreams? I'm not saying that's bad. That's all fine. That's all well and good. And finding fulfillment, finding enjoyment in careers and work, that's all well and good within their place. But we, from the earliest of age, and still even in children, that their fulfillment is going to come from their accomplishments, from them doing something they enjoy, from them making lots of money, from them being famous with other people. And then people wonder why humans turn out the way they do and frustrated and having problems in life and not faithful to the Lord. Our purpose is not to make money. Our purpose is not to enjoy as much pleasure as we can. Our purpose is not to make a name for ourselves because of our intelligence or our achievements. Our purpose is to serve God and to reflect His glory and His image to the world around us. Now, we have to have jobs. We have to work. It's good to rest and to relax and enjoy things. But we can never let those things begin to crowd out an understanding of who we really are. Like Paul, we must remember and live by the motto every day that it is not I who live, it's not my dreams, my goals, my aspirations, but it is Christ who lives in me. What am I going to do today? What I want or what Christ wants? That is living and loving the Lord with all of our soul. But it goes further. Jesus says that we are to love God, we are to love the Lord with all of our mind. This refers to our reason, our intellect, and our will. A lot of times people in the world, especially um, atheists or agnostics or skeptics, accuse Christians of a blind faith. And sometimes they're correct. There are people who live with what you could probably call a blind faith. They are a Christian because their mother and or their father were Christians. They go to the church that they go to because that's where they've always gone. They believe what they believe because that's what they've grown up with. They couldn't possibly defend their faith. They couldn't explain their faith to anybody else. But they know what they are. That's a blind faith. And if that's us, then we need to wake up. If we can't explain to others the reason for our hope, if we can't explain why we believe in Jesus, if we can't explain why we do what we do, then either we're a young Christian and we're still growing and that's perfectly fine, or we've developed a blind faith and that's not fine. That's a problem. God wants a faith from His children that is not blind but is reasonable. God wants us to exercise our mental faculties. He wants us to exercise our minds when it comes to serving Him. Remember what God said to the Israelites in Isaiah 1 verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. What an incredible thought. I've always found that verse amazing. Now, Isaiah also is the one who tells us that God's ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts higher than our thoughts. It's not that we can enter into a debate and have a chance of winning with God. It's not that we can even think on the same plane as God. And yet, God has given us the ability as He has created us in His image. While our knowledge will never equal His, He has given us the ability to think 
and to reason and to use our minds. And he wants us to. He wants us to reason with him, to reason with his word, to think about what is right, to think about what is wrong. Sometimes that's not easy. In fact, sometimes this mental aspect of faith can be a great struggle. It may be an unseen struggle as we wrestle with hard concepts, as we meditate on difficult passages, as we're confronted with issues and situations and we try and think through what is right. One of the things that is very frustrating to me is that real life situations never come quite as neatly packaged as we present them in the pulpit. Somebody comes to you with a marriage problem and it's never quite as easy as just saying what you've heard in the pulpit and everybody's fine and dandy. Sometimes people come with situations that are difficult and acquire a lot of humble thought and prayer and study. Sometimes people come with life situations that are difficult and finding the right way to provide godly counsel and advice is a struggle as we seek to honor God and help people through their circumstances of life, sometimes finding what I need to do. It may be easy on one level, but it's a struggle on another. All of the things that go into our faith, sometimes they are a struggle. I'm not talking about doubts. I'm talking about truly giving our mind to learning and knowing and understanding and applying the Word of God. We must exercise the intellect that God has given us. And we must have knowledge if we want a true and good faith. You see, faith must be in accordance with knowledge, which is a proper evaluation of testimony. In Romans 10, verse 2, Paul wrote of the Israelites of his day, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. A person who is not zealous, an academic person, let's say, who knows a whole lot about God's word and a lot of the details of God's word, but does not have a zeal for following God's word, isn't going to accomplish much. They're going to know a lot of facts that they never put into practice if they don't have a zeal for serving God. But you know, a person that has a lot of zeal for serving God, but doesn't have knowledge, they won't be very helpful either. In fact, they can sometimes be very destructive when people serve God out of a zeal that is not in accordance with the truth, it spreads false doctrine, it results in false practices, it results in hypocrisy, it results in all sorts of problems. And so yes, we need zeal, we need the motivation that we talked about, we need to love God with all of our hearts, but we must also use our minds, we must engage our minds as we follow God. Now, what are some of the ways we do this? Well, we do this by reading Scripture. That may sound easy, but I mean reading Scripture. It's good to sit down and read Scripture through a reading plan or through some form that helps us read every day. But we also need to be careful that we aren't just reading so that we check off our, our do-good list. I read the Bible today. I'm a good Christian. Do we really think about what God is saying? 
And I'm not talking about some ephemeral what God says to me, but I mean what God has said. Do we really think about it? Now, sometimes it might be good instead of trying to get through the entire Bible or a section in a certain amount of time to just sit and read a few verses and think about them and meditate on them. Commit them to memory enough that as we go through our day, they are on our hearts and they are on our minds and they are constantly working on us. And we think about them. And we think of ways that we can put them into practice. And we think about ways we can use what we've learned to help others and share with others. We love God with our mind. We love God with our mind by speaking with God. As we read the Bible, we hear from God. But communication is a two-way thing. And God wants us to speak with Him. And it is a great exercise of our mind to speak with God. And to do so in more than just a way that we've memorized where we just can basically be asleep and repeat off the same phrases and same words that we've always said. What would you think if your spouse always said the exact same thing to you every day? Every time they spoke to you. Or maybe they had their morning conversation and their afternoon conversation and their evening conversation and it was always the exact same. Sprinkled in with a different request here and there. Would that be communication? Would you feel loved by that person? Of course not. You'd think they're just going through the motions. So why would we talk to God that way? Exercise the gift that God gave us and speak to Him. Talk to Him. Pray to Him as who He is, your heavenly Father. It takes mental ability to evaluate good versus evil. Now this evaluation must be based on the Word of God, so what we've already mentioned, we must practice, we must implement our minds as we read Scripture, but then as we do that, We must learn how to apply Scripture. We must read it. We must learn to interpret it. And then we must learn to apply it. What does this passage mean? Not for me personally, but how does this passage apply? How can this passage help me today at work? How can it make me a better husband? How can it make you a better wife? How can it make me a better neighbor? How can it make me a better citizen? How can I apply God's Word? When I'm confronted with the situation, what is right, what is wrong? Not what does the news tell me, not what does my family tell me, not what do other people tell me. What is right and wrong based on God's Word? It's not always easy. And it takes a well-tuned mind, a mind that loves God and loves His Word to be able to make such evaluations. We used the example a little earlier ago of a car. I want you to imagine the same car again beautiful car, maybe a very expensive car. This time it has an engine in it, so it can go zero to 60 as quick as you can imagine, drive smooth like a dream. The only problem with this one is there is no steering wheel. It may go very fast, but do you want to go zero to 60 if you have no control of where it goes? It may drive smooth, but how smooth will it be when it runs off the road because you can't guide where it goes? The mind is like the steering wheel of a vehicle. It guides us. 
It uses the motivations. It uses the driving force that is within us, and it guides them. So yes, we must love God with all of our minds. And then Jesus says we are to love him with all of our strength. This refers to our ability, our energy, and our action. Well, Christianity is in many ways an internal thing. In fact, when you think of all the things we've talked about, our heart, our soul, our mind, all of those are internal type of things. But they all combine and must be expressed externally. That is, through our strength, emotions, knowledge, spirituality, all of those must be expressed through diligent service and action. Christianity is not simply academic, and it is not just philosophic. It is deeply and it is intensely practical, or at least it should be. If it's not, then we are not loving God with all of our strength. Something about strength, or a couple of things about strength, is first of all, strength varies from person to person. Some people are stronger and some people are weaker when it comes to physical strength. Some people's body builds allow them to be stronger in one area. You know, some people may be able to lift a lot of weight. I remember being in high school. You know, we all that played athletics, we tried to work out some. But I remember one, one guy, he was, um, he was just different. He was built different. We walked through one day. And he was doing a power clean. That's he was starting with a bar and jumping and lifting it up. And he was doing, he had an injured shoulder. He literally had it in the cast. And he was doing more with one hand than most of us could do with both. He was just different strength wise. You know, he wasn't the fastest. There were lots of guys in that, in our grade that were faster, had a different strength. We all vary in our strengths. And as you strive to love the Lord with all of your strength, don't look to the strengths of others as a comparison. Maybe somebody's a stronger teacher. Maybe somebody's stronger uh, in this area or that area. Don't evaluate how much you love God by how others are able to do things. Evaluate how well you love God by how much you do with what you can. Some person may love God with all of their strength and it look different than another person. They may have different abilities. The key is give him everything. Give him all. But the other thing with strength is while we do vary, while abilities vary, strength can be increased through exercise. Even professional athletes may, may have some form of a advantage in one way or another. But none of them reach the professional stage without training, without exercise. And that's true of our strength as well. Maybe I'm not as strong as you in one area. You're not as strong as I am in another area. But we both have the ability to grow. That takes work. That takes effort, but it can be done. And if we are ever going to love God with all of our strength, then we must work and we must put forth the effort and seek to increase our strength and our ability each 
and every day. Well, as we consider these ideas, loving God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, it is, there's one common denominator amongst all of these. And that is that God wants all. Jesus could have summed it up that way. It's nice to have the heart and mind and soul and strength to think about all of these peripheral ideas. But the baseline is this. We must love the Lord with all. God does not want half. God does not want a majority. God does not want 99% from you or from me. God doesn't want some of your heart, part of your mind, a lot of your soul, and whatever leftover energy you can muster. God wants and God deserves all of everything we have. And as I evaluate my life and you evaluate yours, that's the question we must ask. Am I really giving God all. I like this phrase that I read once. A man said, a laborer works with his hands, a craftsman works with his hands and his head, an artist works with his hands, head, and heart, but a Christian works with his hands, head, heart, and life. Don't give God a part. Don't even give God most of your life. Give God everything. Give him all, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. And in so doing, you will serve him and you will glorify him. And he will honor you. He has given all for us. Jesus left heaven, lived as a man and died on the cross. The author, the creator of life, tasted death because he loved us. Surely, returning that love by giving him all that we are and all that we can be is not too high of a price. It's what he deserves. And I believe it truly is the greatest joy we will ever experience to truly love God with all that we are. And so I hope that lesson encourages us to look at our own lives and consider where we can increase in our love and what we can do to always love God with all. It is the greatest commandment. And I believe wholeheartedly that if we will truly love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, I'm not saying everything else will always be easy, but I think it will be easier. It will be easier to give. It will be easier to serve. It will be easier to worship. It will be easier to live a moral and right life. That's why it is the greatest commandment. We get that right. Everything else will work itself out and fall into place as it should.